Hello and welcome to the Armin Show podcast, episode number 390. Doing great things, science, people, creativity, always expanding and trying things differently. On this one, it's super cool. We have two prior guests. One currently here, Rebecca Faith Lawson, in the building, and we are in Florida. And then one not currently here, Bronwyn Williams, South Africa, of South Africa, both joining to discuss a variety of topics. Welcome to both of you. Thanks, Armin. <laughs> this is super duper. I like things like a round table or a group discussion or getting different perspectives. It's a nice thing. And you can see people comparatively. We all bring something completely different to the table. I have five topics in mind. And this is uh, somewhat prepared on my end, somewhat connected to Bronwyn's content on that end, and somewhat impromptu checking for perspective with Rebecca on this end. So three different ranges. The more prefacing I do, the better. Now, the first one I want to discuss is something that was completely unrelated to anything, but came up in my mind today, being here in Florida, thinking about the differences between people. There are individuals that are more likely to take advantage of others and people that are more likely to be taken advantage of. And you can get the sense when you meet people that I'm not recommending the taking advantage of, but you can sense the individuals that are more whole and full and the individuals that are more, what can I possibly get out of scenarios? So first I will toss this one to Bronwyn. What are your thoughts on that? What makes up qualities that separate people who take advantage of others versus get taken advantage of in some way? Well, that's that's a fact. I mean, like this is, this is quite well known in economic literature. In fact, there's some games you can play online. I think the the Wait But Why website had at one stage quite a nice explainer on this, but there are also some sort of interactive websites you can go to to actually figure out how people react to each other in competitive and collaborative games. And what we generally tend to find is that most people respond in a kind of tit-for-tat manner. So if I'm nice to you, you'll be nice back to me. That's sort of the, the, the larger chunk in the middle of the market. That's how most people behave. But on either end, you've got two kind of more exceptional groups. You've got people that always act in a self-interested manner, even if there are consequences. So these are people that are like, perpetually selfish or buy into that Ayn Rand philosophy wholesale. And on the other end, you've got people who always do the, the right thing or the, the thing that's good for the group rather than good for themselves. These are people that could be known as sort of doormats, got walked over quite a lot in life. That's, uh, or they're just saints, right? So it depends on, on how cynical you are. But most of us in general are quite cynical. So when it comes to sort of societal good and being treated well or badly, we tend to mirror what other people around us do. And that's very much where the whole sort of mimetic studies, which is doing it's doing the rounds and popular discourse at the moment comes in. But I do think it's quite an interesting subject to get into. That's a great, great way to describe it, actually. That's nice. The mimetic study, people and their connections with sharing material gets repeated around here and there. Yeah, if you want to get into that, um, the, the big book on the circuit at the moment is Luke Burgess's Wanting, which summarizes Rene Girard, who's kind of the philosopher behind that whole study. But it summarizes his work for a pop culture audience. So you don't have to go and wade through the academic sort of discourse that Girard himself put together on that subject. Shout outs to the academic discourse on that. I'm going to do it's an analog easy. of it. It's not an easy read at all to get into the, the original source content there. So Luke's done a great job just translating that with pictures for everyone to understand. Fair. I like pictures. Yeah. Pictures make things easier to understand. 
same time. I like, I like some online chat programs make things easier for like explain it like an eight year old, and then you get a better idea than you would have just normally. In that way, now I'm gonna bring an angle to it, Rebecca. As far as people being taken advantage of or taking advantage, is there a winner on either side? Tough. Is there a winner? Let's say one person takes advantage of another, the other gets taken advantage of. Is there a winner or not? And then maybe I'll check with Bronwyn after. Well, I'd love to um, just touch base on what Bronwyn said initially and um, just acknowledge that um, the tit for tat analogy and I can tell like you're very um, like rehearsed and like you've maybe read up a lot like on this concept because you're you just um, you definitely know exactly like kind of how you think about it or you have such great examples of different scenarios of how people could react and um, yeah so like the tit for tat I feel like that's just um, that comes up so naturally, I feel like in so many scenarios for maybe even myself or for people, it's like, oh, wow, someone did something great for me. Like you just almost want to like give back to that person. Like it's just like this warm exchange. Um, and then if like someone maybe does something that's like rude to you, you just kind of have this feeling of like, kind of like, okay, like that was kind of cold or, um, but yeah, like when it comes to if somebody's uh, winning, I think maybe it also comes to like the mindset behind it. I feel like some people have this like altruistic mindset, you know, they're, they're always like doing things for people, not really like benefiting from it, but for whatever reason that person benefits, like they're still benefiting for themselves because that's what brings them joy is like doing good for other people. And um, maybe they're just like so focused on like, that's like maybe their purpose in life and um, they're feeling fulfilled in that way. And, so I think, yeah, like if in that scenario, people are winning, if that's the case. And then if people are benefiting from it, maybe they could possibly possibly be in like a survival mode. And maybe that is like all they can give is actually like they can only give their presence and they're really just taking in a way. But maybe that's all they can bring. And really, they're receiving a gift from another person. And maybe later on in life, they'll turn around and be able to give, maybe they'll be more full. So I think like in life, there's always this exchange going on and you're always either giving or receiving. And maybe if it's not your turn to give, it will be in the future. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And then of course, like when it comes to these games, it depends whether or these exchanges, whether we're doing things selfishly or more altruistically, it depends whether we see there's a future or not, right? So if it's a single round game, as economic theory would kind of term it, because there's a whole study of these sorts of things, that's game theory. If you're interested in going into that rabbit hole, there's loads of academic literature there. But if it's a single game, generally it's best for us to act in our own self-interest. And and as you said, and, and again, the book there, The Elephant in the Brain, it really gets into that where even when we do good things for people, we often do it for selfish motives because it makes us feel good, which kind of makes the whole sort of field of charity into like a very, it looks at it from a very, very different angle. So there's different things we get out. We have different utility from doing different things, but we're whether my self-interest is to do something so that I feel superior or I feel like a good person or whether that is I do something or to get something. It depends very much on whether you see this as a single a single 
interaction, that you're never going to interact with that person or that group of people again, or with society at large, or whether you see things as a longer term cycle. And then again, there's also the book called Infinite Games, which gets into exactly this, right? That you can build much more healthy societies when you look at things over time, that we take turns, we take turns to give and to receive, you sow and then you reap which only takes place if you can understand that we're going to be working together, living together for a period of time. There's more than one round to it. And that's the way these sort of games are solved to maximize utility for both the individual and for the group, whatever that utility is, is by looking at these sort of coordination strategies. And in general, a bit of tit for tat, a bit of I give up a bit of something, understanding that over time it will be better for both of us is the best strategy. But there's always that incentive for one player that selfish player that you spoke about that always acts in their own interest, that never acts for the good of the group, that person always has an incentive to renege on the game when they exit that game, right? So whether that is a, a one-shot game or whether that is 10 or 15 interactions into it, there's always that temptation for that person to exit. And kind of a, the, the idea is that as agents, as beings, we're always trying to figure out at what point it will be better for us to play our own game rather than play the game. It's of benefit for both of us. And in general, the longer we play nicely, the better it is for everyone. But like the classic game, there's of course like the prisoner's dilemma, right? So if we think that we can win something in the short term, we might make short term decisions. But this, this explains all sorts of short-sighted economic behavior, what managers do in businesses, why shareholders make terrible decisions, why boards make bad decisions, why politicians overpromise and underdeliver. It's all because they're thinking about the sort of interactions on a shorter time scale and understanding that they personally can benefit from exiting the game, the game earlier than would be of benefit for everyone else. So that's why coordinating people is so difficult because A, we have different motives, <laughs> we're optimizing for different things, and B, we're playing different games with different time scales. Valid. And well spoken, by the way. I would like to say, connected to that, I'm going to switch the ordering of the topics. I wanted to go into like what makes a healthy society, but that's not on my list of topics, so I'll leave that out for now. But might be included later. But connected to maybe political discussion or what's put out there, the narrative of society. You had a posting about who controls the narrative, the discussion that gets put out there. I'll throw this to Rebecca first, and then to you. Rebecca, do you feel the narrative of society that is placed on the public? Do you sense that there is a story portrayed to the public in some way? Is it feelable or is it not that clear? What comes mm -hmm. to mind as far as any sort of story being put on us? So I think that the first thing that comes to my mind, I think, would be just, you know, what is... Uh, what is like the cultural story being told? Like, you know, what is, what are we all going for? What do we want in life? Is it this family or what's like cool? Like, is it the job we're trying to get? Um, what is going to be reaching whatever society's whole feels is success in a way. And success, success. And success. so people are probably maneuvering based off of their idea of what that success is, whether that's, you know, like, giving or receiving or this whole concept it's that's what they're going to be making their focus point i think mm -hmm. valid that's a valid point what like like what we we yearn for this position of okay we've made it in some form we've hit a success point and then it's like there's a story telling you that 
these four metrics meet that. If you don't meet these four metrics, then you must not, even if you feel good about yourself. So it's like countering your own self-esteem. That's funny in a way. Bronwyn, thoughts on the narrative put out Yes, there's like two ways to look at it. I mean, like my, my beginning part of my career was working in marketing, specifically in direct marketing before it was cool, before everyone was involved in content marketing. Before I was it was thinking- cool. Before it was cool, you know, like content marketing became a thing around about the year 2011 when suddenly everyone became a content marketer because social media kind of shifted and we started getting influencers and creators and all of that. But before then, like direct marketing, like writing emails or sending, sending like messages in the post was very, very uncool. And marketers for most general brands sort of completely rolled their eyes at it. But it's highly effective. In fact, it's still some of the highest ROI marketing you can do to build up an email list and communicate with those people regularly, right? Because it's a one-on-one communication channel. But anyway, the point is, if you want to get a story across, there's two ways to do it, essentially. One is through quantity and others through quality. So the quantity would just be a simple thing of frequency. This is a technique that's used in propaganda and advertising, marketing, it's repetition. It's like Coke is about friendship and family or whatever, you know, like you're trying to drive home those associations and just by hearing it over and over again, that you will start to, if not believe it, at least those connections in your brain would have been made. And then you've got the quality angle, which depends on generally some sort of credibility. So whether you've got a trust with that audience through building that trust through your through your program like you're doing here, through your email newsletter over time, or just being consistent and being a credible person there, or it could also be sort of bought credibility in terms of fame. Again, the sort of influences that we have today, but in the past we often had spokespeople, whether that was a scientist, a doctor, a politician telling us these sorts of things. So when it comes to sort of general messages, there are some gatekeepers that have both access to large-scale quantity. In other words, like this is where the mainstream media conversations come in. You know, there's very few media companies that own a lot of the big newspapers. And that was easier, again, before sort of concentration and tension fragmented thanks to social media, which is sort of individual creates it and curates it and disseminates that information. So it was quite easy to control that quantity of narrative if you owned a lot of publications. Again, this is mass media. This was the sort of the, the last century way of doing community doing propaganda as a government, doing advertising. You'd be on prime time and no one could skip your ad. But at the same time, quite often those same gatekeepers also have access to the, the quality side. They're able to pay influencers. They're able to select and, and uh, persuade people of political or scientific credibility to push those messages through their scale too. So when you control both scale and you control the sort of credibility layer, then you do have outsized control as to what sort of messages seep into popular culture. Again, not everyone is going to believe you. And in general, the way that media works, at least in the West, unlike in quite some of the more sort of totalitarian societies where there's sort of one voice that controls everything quite literally, the way that sort of democracy tends to settle over time, and that's both in the sort of corporate space and the political space, is you kind of get this tension, this sort of this political binary, which we've always been kind of forced into, sort of pick a side, right? Like there's, there's a constant pressure to pick a side, but quite often those sides are kind of saying a lot of the same things things just in different ways designed to appeal to to different markets which i think is quite an interesting thing to look at too that's a sort of a step sort of further further into the weeds in this conversation but the idea is that yes there are gatekeepers particularly as we do live in quite an unfair world where there are a lot of monopolies there's monopolies on money there's monopolies on politics on violence if you're a government you get to own weapons that other people can't own and of course you've got then monopolies over attention too and quite often these are our very big tech companies 
companies that have sets of terms and conditions and also sort of rules against censorship or usership, sort of um, what's allowed to be said, what's not. Just like what's happened now with ChatGPT, that these things have been told what they are and are not allowed to communicate with us about, oh, that topic's naughty, you know, to find a way around it or hack and cheat the code in order to talk about it. And those sort of platforms, just due to their scale, can have an influence over both, again, that quantity and the quality of information that gets to more people. Again, this doesn't work on everyone, but the scale game does count. It, like that repetition does it does filter into the general psyche. We do tend to know if the machines aren't allowed to talk about a certain topic, then maybe we're not supposed to talk about it either. You're in polite society. And of course, a lot of these rules are not necessarily rules. They also then become norms, right? This is where the sort of social cooling phenomenon comes on. So it's not like you're not allowed to say certain things. You're going to go to jail or get punished. But you do kind of understand there's social repercussions for saying having certain opinions that could be a borderline, get you into a bit of trouble or at least get you into debates that you might not have the energy to have with your colleagues online or offline. And you sort of that's when you sort of self start self-censoring to match essentially the rules or the norms that are being propagated by the economies of scale that are generally sort of funneling conversation one way or another. And I think that the signal you were sort of picking up on there when it comes to these platforms is that not only do they sort of prevent certain topics from coming to the surface, they also, because of their scale, have the ability to choose which pieces of content are created that become viral, right? Yeah. And they do this because like if you if you do run a platform like TikTok, you've got your own algorithm, for example, or Twitter, whatever it is. The algorithm says if a content is X, then we should push it out to more people, put it on the For You tab on Twitter or send it out to more new users on TikTok. And that's a deliberate choice, right? So these tastemakers are not just uh, predicting what's going to be popular. They're also making things popular by choosing what is going to be repeated and propagated at a greater scale than other things, right? So it's very much a kind of like they, they get to choose the winners, which is a very powerful position to have in society, knowing that we are quite hackable. And like I said at the beginning, we're quite mimetic. We like to like what other people like because that's how we fit in with the group that's how we feel like we part of a part of a tribe or part of a, a group that that makes us feel good because we want we human beings we so, want to socialize we want to be part of things so we kind of have to constantly be aware of this and it's not i'm not taking a moral stance at it but we have to be aware that those things do work on us and the more we sort of understand the way we can be hacked the more we can choose to protect ourselves from being hacked in these ways well said, valid, was, and also sorry. there is a real, there is a real like control mechanism of what is put out there, such that what we are getting is, you don't know if you're fully getting what's just randomly <laughs> put out there versus it's placed in a in a certain mode, and then it affects your attitude. And this actually is a good segue to another <laughs> signal you represented about how optimism in individuals can make some people angry. How can you be so happy? Why do you have that upbeat mode? On that one, I have a thought on it. But Rebecca, do you notice, do you feel societally supported when being optimistic or upbeat on something? Or do you ever feel that too much joy would be pushed back against by the internet or in public. Any thought on that pushback? 
I think that it depends what you're being optimistic about. If it goes with the narrative that is being pushed, then immediately you will be more accepted and people might get on board with you. But if you're being optimistic about something that maybe goes against that narrative and maybe you're seeing outside the box of what media is pushing on you and you're excited about your your viewpoint, but if it if it goes against the norm, then you might you know, people just won't be as accepting and you might be a little bit more of a loner um, and you might have to like find your own group who you connect with and you, and supports you if you really want to have full expression of how you're feeling. How much, how much do we have to filter out who we are around so we can be in our optimistic state? I think that you basically would probably have to have a strong community that you can um, be involved with and express. Otherwise, you're going to have to filter out a, like a lot of yourself or filter out a lot of people um, because you'll just get a lot of negativity back to you if you're always expressing people who are not, don't feel connected to your standpoint or your views or things you're excited about. I don't like that concept of filtering out parts of myself. That part is very counter to my nature. But that's true. You would have to do that if you want to blend in with a bigger group. You have no choice at that point because then you'll start butting heads with people. They're like, oh, you can't be that. One of you has to mm -hmm. lose. It's like a, almost a subjugation battle in a way. Right. It's always great to find support in something you really do believe in. If you feel that's the direction you're going to, that's how you're going to be able to kind of hold on to that and not shy away from the world if, if that's like really part of you, like something you believe or want to pursue. You have to hold on to that. And actually, before I toss that to you, Bronwyn, I want to add in a part. I had done a paper recently on GABA receptors. made me think of glucocorticoids. When someone like steps on another person, they get glucocorticoids released in themselves. Bronwyn, do you ever think of the biochemical changes that happen during people-people interactions? And then we'll go to the optimism topic. But do you ever think about that, like dopamine effects or what happens in the body when... Oh yeah, I mean, like we—it's—it's it's so visceral. But I think I, most interesting thing about that is how those receptors don't work the same way through a screen that they do face to face, right? And I think that's one of the most interesting things that we picked up on our various bits of research, like during the whole COVID remote working things. A lot of our clients are in the sort of future of work kind of space. That's why they engage with us. And this whole idea of like teams just sort of crumbling at the moment. So whether it's sort of minimum effort Mondays that people are proudly bragging about on TikTok or whether it's quiet quitting or whether it's rage quitting or whatever the case is, all this sort of crumbling is because people are not bonding because you can't bond through a screen. You, there's this, still this uncanny valley type of thing. So you see my face now and you might be listening to what I'm saying, but you're not really connecting with me as a human being. You're connecting with me like as a disembodied voice right so you automatically don't trust me as much as you would or would not Ronan, we, i don't trust my you. chemicals <laughs> if i was standing in the room with you we have visceral reactions to each other that we can't quantify and if we can't quantify and codify them because we're only just beginning to understand this sort of thing we can't program them to transmit them through a screen that's the point so anything that has not been 100 percent understood can't actually be transmitted i think this is really interesting for like uh, the trust levels that we sort of dishing out to the various computer programs that again we have created and again they are digitized they are discrete they have been flattened they might be very very good at 
what they do, but they don't know what they don't know. So in like future studies, people go back to the old, the old sort of known knowns, known unknowns, unknown unknowns all the time. But there's a whole lot of unknown unknowns to the machines that we're dealing with. So if we don't know them, we can't sort of fix it. So there's all these sort of nuances and communication and connection that we're missing out on. We don't even know what we're missing out on. All we know is that there's this sort of uncanny feeling of disconnect or distrust and manifests in various different ways, dissatisfaction, you know, or, or feeling unloved. And we can't, you can't program those things because we don't fully understand them yet. Maybe, maybe we'll get there sometime in the future, but the way things are progressing, it looks like uh, we, could, we could end ourselves before we, before we end up understanding ourselves. But again, that depends on how optimistic you are about, about what comes next. Can I make a comment on this yes. real quick, Armin? <laughs> yeah, so that's, yeah, such a great perspective and ways I can relate to. Um, and I think like one point, I this isn't based off of empirical research. This is just more my own experience. I think that there's probably something to how familiar you are with talking to someone over the screen. And, and if a person, because we're so used to talking to people in person that we do have this connection and familiarity. And if a person were to talk to someone over the screen, very, very like maybe just once or twice, it would feel, I think, pretty disconnected. But if a person is so used to connecting with people over the screen and the more a person gets used to it, I think they can trust that person more based, like if the more frequently they do it, because perhaps they have built trust with people and through screen and then got to know them in person. And the more they have that sort of interaction, I think that can, there's like growth for that. Cause I feel, yes, if you um, are familiar and you have positive affirmation in that way, then it's gonna, it's a different experience than someone who doesn't have that, I guess, rapport with talking to someone over a screen. I'm going to come in there because like, I don't know if this, this reinforces or uh, disputes what you just did, said there, because one of the most interesting studies that relates to this topic actually relates to a study the NHS did in the UK, looking at loneliness levels of people during lockdown who connected with their friends and family using video calls. And what they found that was with particularly with older people, the effects were less as you went down the age groups. Now there's, you don't know why, because this, this obviously hasn't been unpacked to all the various different degrees, but with everyone and particularly with, as you got older, the effect was greater. People that have spent time talking to their loved ones on video calls felt lonelier after a video call than if they had not had any contact at all. So it was almost like the old sort of drinking salt water to quench your thirst, you know, water everywhere and not a drop to drink. So as you're drinking this, it's not fixing the loneliness. So I don't think that disputes what you say with regards to the trust, because it actually shows that that video call makes you long for that person more. But it also shows that it doesn't fulfill all the needs that we have as human beings. So I think that there's quite a, quite a nice case study there, particularly for economic communications, whether that's through an office or through conversations like this. These platforms are, can be very useful for utilitarian purposes, but we have to understand their, their limitations. So great for communication. We communicate with people across the world like we're doing right now. Absolutely fantastic. We could build rapport over time. It's going to take longer, but that's okay because it's still cheaper and less time consuming than actually getting on a plane, you know, in terms of resources and all the rest of it. But there's still something missing. 
And that's the, and that's the bit that we haven't been able to program yet. And people are trying to program this. We're trying to put VR headsets on our head. We're trying to make full on haptic suits so we can feel the other person as creepy as that gets. You know I mean? Like we know, we know the sex industry is leading this. We don't have to go into the details, but we try, we keep on trying to add things, but there's so many little things that we miss out on. Like those little nuances. The other, the other part of this whole sort of video thing in terms of the disconnect is just how much more tiring it is to have a conversation like this, because you're having to use your conscious brain to fully understand the other person talking all the time, because your unconscious brain can't fill in the gaps, which, which it does quite often usually with those little, the little minute sort of crinkles around the wrinkles around my eyes that you might not see here, because maybe I've got a filter on that all just sort of help you understand what I'm saying, all the little, the little bits that we pick up on. So we have to work a little bit harder in order to communicate, which makes us feel tired. And it makes us feel, again, it plays into all sort of mental health issues that we're seeing at the moment. And that's probably one of the, the most disturbing trends, particularly coming out of your side of the world in the Americas right now, particularly what's happening with uh, youth and youth deaths of despair, because those deaths of despair used to be like, this is the other thing I read this week that's like really blowing my mind. It was like a very middle Western, lower to middle class white male phenomena, but it's moved down the age generational cohorts into particularly young women, which I think is so interesting. But I think a lot of that's got to do with this disconnect and loneliness. Water everywhere, not a drop to drink. Long live the, that is funny, the loneliness epidemic happening at the same time as hyperconnectivity. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's both. All these trends, all the trends, every trend you look at, and I'm going to be looking at trends for quite a long time, they have these sort of. Flux trends pull and push right so if what would you push down here pops up over there there's always like a like a counter train somewhere else and if you look if you look for it right i mean it's like a weight it's like physics so if something goes down here it's going to come up somewhere else that's true and i see like a society as pendulum swing every 10 years different things swing that way and then once it goes that far that way it has to come back i like the point brought up by rebecca about individuals and their connectivity where if you already know them well, you can fill in the gaps more so. Mm. And so the calls would still be adding on. And then your follow-up there is nice that still at the same time, the call can make a longing for that person um, because it doesn't have all the full bandwidth that we like. Those both can work together at the same time. That's kind of cool. It is yeah, nice like, just an anecdotally, like with my daughter, if I'm traveling, she doesn't want to speak to me on the phone. <laughs> she doesn't want to see my face on a video call. So if, if I'm not there with her, she'd rather not. It, it's more distressing to her to have. Huh. Uh, which is interesting. So I, I don't, uh, I mean, like children and children just have like a more visceral reaction to these sorts of things. So like it, it upsets her greatly. So, whereas like the out of sight, out of mind is much easier to deal with. That's, that's an anecdote. That's certainly not a study that goes along with that. But I think that, that kind of, that, that childish innocence kind of probably expresses what those elderly people in the UK actual formal study were experiencing. It's like, who wrote that research paper? My daughter basically indirectly wrote it. <laughs> indirectly wrote that. Valid. The connectivity is a big item there. Now... That is the, these segues are golden, by the way. The segues just build themselves. That's connectivity, real world versus the not as uh, direct lower bandwidth, we could say uh, video could be audio call or less. Now, I had another topic that you'd written about physical books rather than ebooks. Younger people 
like to hold a book. It's almost switching back. Younger people are kind of more similar to the oldest people. And then there's the middle crew that's of a different mindset. That's what I'm seeing. It's like the pendulum swung. And But as far as the category of holding a book in your hand or having those kinds of experiences right there versus an ebook or the electric electronic version of something, Rebecca, do you sense a difference when using a book that you're holding or getting the feeling of something in person versus the half experience. I don't know what that would be like. Let's say Disneyland would be like cool. And then the half experience would be like a video or a hologram of what that is. Thoughts on this? When, you're when my sister, <laughs> when my sister um, and I are together, we always, we always have coffee. And the thing is, is that I'll make her a cup of coffee, but and I'll put the foam in it. We put, we make it like a cappuccino and she'll drink it or no, I'm so sorry. She'll just look at it and she'll hold it, but I will make it and I'll actually drink the drink. Clear difference. And I, I bring this up because when it comes to a book, like I love, I love the experience. Like I love holding a book, you know, and, and having coffee and stuff um, and the way it makes me feel. And but then there's, I think, you know, that there's some people who maybe like the audiobooks and they just, they just like hearing it or they don't even, maybe they don't even take the time to have that experience and that feeling of having a book. And so maybe it's just like a lack of knowledge that they don't realize that there could be this nice experience with it. And, um, or it could be, they just want the convenience of not having a lot of books in their house, like clutter. And they just are like, oh, we can just put this all on Kindle and, you know, just go about our day. But I think it's so cool when I, maybe it's just personal preference, personality stuff of whether you have it online or whether you really hold a book and you love the feeling. That's a valid point. I do kind of like the feeling of having physical books. I have a high preference for them. The online or Kindle version is not, mm -hmm. the, it's not the same. There's a book here, for example, I'm just gonna, this random book. <laughs> but like how cool how cool is this i don't know if it's picking up on the mic but this is cool mm -hmm. like this okay i can see it. yeah it's an, like an experience just <laughs> there's something cool about like there's parts to it and there's segments and i've always liked that bronwyn thoughts on the comparison that's a valid point <laughs> well, i like I, the coffee I, one by the way one of us is drinking it one of us is looking at it just looking at it. But, but, you, but you get you get the experience from that real cup of coffee too because it's the smell it's the warmth you're getting a whole lot of sensory tactile sort of pleasure from that even if you're not sipping it because you've got a whole lot of senses that go with it so physical books do re like respond to more of our physical senses so there are again there are studies that show that you do retain more information reading off a page or a paper-based book than you would off a screen and that's to do with the sort of contrast to do with the glare all these things you might not even be aware of even if you love reading on your kindle and the kindles have a, a very flat does it's not actually like a shiny screen but still there's that slight amount of glare which does kind of slow you down I mean, there's other ways to speed up your reading too, like bolding the first part of a word, you know, there's all these sorts of things that we can do that we don't do, increasing the size of the font, all those sorts of things. But that, that is, a, I think it's an important point, particularly for people that read a lot, that are studying or that read a lot for, for work. But um, I suppose the real reason that I tend towards books right now is, is like leaning towards my more sort of futuristic conspiracy theory sort of tendencies. And then what's been happening with ebooks at the moment and that they, they, they don't actually belong to you even though you've paid, in my case, living in South Africa, 
if I get a book on my Kindle, it costs me more than buying a physical copy, which is incredible. I just don't understand it, but this is generally to do with taxes and inefficiencies with governments. So we can, we can like sort of park that thought. That's just, just general bureaucratic inefficiency. But what, so what annoys me with that is that you've purchased it, but you don't actually own it because it still belongs to the platform that it lives on. Now there are exceptions to that. So maybe if you've actually created a PDF yourself and you've saved it onto your device yourself, but if you've purchased it from platforms, the terms and conditions say, if a publisher changes their terms and conditions, they can remove or edit the copy of whatever you've got on your device. Where, and the sort of stories that have been in the news lately, where I think the first one was ironically sort of George Orwell's 1984, which, which uh, the publisher changed the copy of and really annoyed people, or actually disappeared from people's Kindles altogether because there was a dispute between Amazon and the publisher. It was just very ironic that it happened with that particular book. But more recently, there was the whole sort of sensitivity reader censorship of the role all children's books, right? Which for a start, I wouldn't buy on a Kindle because they've got illustrations and you kind of want to see them in the physical book. But still, if you had bought them, you would kind of wake up one morning and suddenly the story and the, the phrases that you might have memorized as a kid are not quite the same because they've been uh, adapted to the current zeitgeist and what is politically correct and what's, what's offensive and what's inoffensive, which changes all the time, which I think does sort of kind of make a mockery of why we purchase books anyway. They're not supposed to be as fleeting as the content that we put into our social media streams. They're supposed to be a bit of a sort of marker in, in the ground. And that's the beauty of a book is that the author gets the opportunity to tell their whole story from beginning to end. And you as the reader are invited to either listen or not. You know, you can, you can check out, but you can't interrupt the reader, right? And this is sort of now we can kind of interrupt the writer, which, which we couldn't do before, which I think is a bit annoying. So there's, there's various reasons that I I don't think there's any sort of moral stance between one or the other, but there are considerations on both sides. The other thing that I think that's worth making a point is that books are technology too, and that not so long ago, people thought they were as terrible for the human brain as we might think that uh, TikTok or Instagram are for us right now. I mean, like humans don't change much in that regard. They are technology, they are artificial, they're not natural, even if we think they are. They are a human created product and we can use them just like we can use the other technologies and communication for it, formats that we have available to us today. We should use them in ways that suit us. Right, it should be somewhat on our terms. Individually, just... so we can use them in different ways. We don't have to all use them in the same way. Right, no. There's no right no. way to read a book. No. <laughs> you know, just a random tidbit. I like to sometimes now skip the first part of the book, go to like chapter three, four, five, uh, look at the ending of the book, and then come back, read the first part of the book, and then after five. So it's sort of like get to the, what I would call the meat of it, then go check the index and acknowledgements, see if there's any cool research or something I noticed. Then I come back to the intro and then I read through. Rebecca, how do you read through a book? Is there any ordering? Do you do any weird thing like I do? <laughs> I think I, I usually actually just look at the author. I like always like bring them up on Google and I'm like, who is this? Like I always check out who the author is. And then the I, but I also like, you know how you like would go into a movie store back in the day and you would look at all all the movies and you'd read about the movie. So same with books. It's just almost interesting just to read the summaries and the back of it. And uh, I almost get like as much of enjoyment as reading a book from just reading like what books are about. But so I don't think that there's, I don't, I definitely don't normally skip just because I don't, there's so much you would miss or you're just saying you would skip to see 
kind of what the book might be about. Some of the hefty stuff because it's intro and then it gets to the hefty stuff and mm-hmm. then later on come back to the intro because then it's more meaningful to me, the intro. Mm-hmm. I know what I was getting to in a way. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I like that point though. The summaries, the mm-hmm. bigger picture in a way. I have to actually read through the book. Mm-hmm. Rebecca can just get a gist of a book. I have to do this slow extended process of getting that's we all have different abilities mm-hmm. <laughs> it's nice to see the summaries though you get like a semblance of what's happening today let's say april 2023 at the bookstore this mm-hmm. Bonner, have you ever randomly just gone through a bookstore random books and like what's going on today as far as discussion occasionally i generally i generally sort of follow things that people recommend to me so if I, you find that like books kind of find you but i i don't i don't do the whole sort of reading any introductions or prefaces until till the end of the book i like to just go in cold or, or even about the author i'll get to i'll get to him at the end i'd rather first just read the words on their own terms and then figure out who said them which i think quite backwards the way a lot of people do it i mean the preface is there at the beginning for a reason but Maybe I'm just a rebellious in that way. I'm not interested in someone telling me what I should learn from this before I've learned it myself. Go back and see if I agree at the end. <laughs> we all have mm-hmm. different orderings. We're going to say. Yeah, oh, I, I was just saying that's so creative. Like I, yeah, I don't normally hear of people going about books that way. So that's really cool. But it reminds me of just like even my mom. She'll be like, I don't want to know anything about a movie at all. Like let me just figure it out as I go. And I'm always just like, I love a preface. Like I love. Or a preference, like I love like knowing what to kind of expect just a little bit without spoiling it. But it is more of an adventure in a way to really just like take it as it comes. So whether that's a book or a movie. Which are in the same category, that's true. I usually always do books, not as much movies. That's my difference of nature. But that's true. They are both like a substantial thing. I like that you put them together. And also you can't be interrupted. Like you were saying, when you're reading a book, it's a thing. It's uninterrupted, unlike social media and a movie. The same thing. I applaud, even I don't watch that many movies. I applaud them because they're a big package, versus little things that can be interrupted repeatedly or next one and next one. That's one thing I do like about movies and uh, books. They have a very extensive like. We're gonna be here is deep folk, uh, deep work, like Cal Newport's uh, yeah. book, where you focus on something for a long time. Mm-hmm. It builds some of your. Ability. I'm actually complimenting movies in a way. They like a two hour long movie. It builds some of your like you can stick mm-hmm. with something compared to TikTok. I'd rather have somebody watch a movie than a TikTok. I just mm-hmm. thought about that. That's funny. Yeah, it, it evokes more attention. You have to really pay attention and keeps you engaged for longer than just a TikTok swipe. So, right. Mm-hmm. That's a good one. It's so abrupt. It's very abrupt. Mm-hmm. Now, the one other signal. The last signal of yours that I want to include here is a broad one. ROI or return of investment on the life. We have lives and investment. We do invest beforehand and we have people behind us that invested even beforehand. What is the, the, the title of your signal was what is the return on investment on a life? I have some thoughts on what a life is. Rebecca. What comes to mind as far as what you get from who you are or what you have done? Is there a big substantial, what do we get for our investment in our being 10 years down the line, 20 years down the line, if we put in a cool effort, Mm -hmm. what can be a positive? Broad question. Armin throws out broad (laughs) questions out of nowhere. It's a bit broad, but (laughs) yeah, I think, 
you're going to hopefully get positive results based off of the goals you have and the work you put towards your goals. I think that there definitely is a lot of things in our control, but there's also factors that are outside our control, which can benefit those goals or take you away from those goals, depending on just life circumstances in general and maybe challenges you face that are just even uh, sometimes leading you towards a different direction. But I think on that, on that point of control, <laughs> that's a good point is getting some control of the future part of the value of investing that it's more like within your hands versus if you didn't things in the future are less within your hands. The, are you referring to the effort you put in? Like, yeah, if you, so is that one of the goals of investing in the future is that like five years from now, you'll have more control over all the elements of mm -hmm. your life than you would have if you didn't things are more mm -hmm. like happening to you and you're reacting. Yeah. I think that effort definitely plays into opportunity. You, like set yourself up for multiple opportunities rather than if you don't put the effort in, then you could really reduce perhaps the opportunities that you would want. So you're taking the steps, you're taking the steps in those directions of your goals. And um, so hopefully you'll be fulfilled and that will be worth it in your life. That's cool. It's like mm -hmm. an opening. You don't, you're not close. You're not constricting your future in a way. Right. Effort will always like, Oh, I feel open more doors then close. Yeah. Valid point. I don't like constriction. Constriction is a death of me. I will die. I don't like it. <laughs> um, Bronwyn, return on investment on a life. You had your perspectives on it. What comes to mind in that category? Yes, this is the, the great difference. I think like if you've been following me on the various different platforms, it's something that I think about quite a lot is there's in economics and in capitalism, there are a lot of things that we price and a lot of that is useful. So using money and capitalism as a system, and we kind of understand that word, I know we all think about it slightly differently, but the general idea is it's a pretty useful system for distributing definitively scarce resources, right? Like where you have to have a price because there's only so many apples in the particular, on the particular tree in the particular playground, right? It's like, how are you going to distribute them so that the most people get the most again coming back to the concept at the beginning that idea of like utility out of out of this sort of little tiny economy you got there and money and markets are quite good for that because if i value apples more than i value bananas i'll pay more for them so i'll end up getting more of them and you like bananas more than apples you can have more bananas and i can have more apples we could both be happy at least that's sort of what ha should happen in theory but we can take these things too far and at the moment we're doing some pretty crazy things and I think this has largely come out of the philosophy of Web3, which is the collision of the sort of virtual economy with ideas of cryptography and private money and these sorts of things, is we've started monetizing or pricing a whole lot of things that don't need to be priced, right? And, that, and that's leading us into devaluing us as, as human beings, right? So when you try and put a price onto something like, let's take an example everyone knows about, like if, well, everyone on the speaking circuit used to talk about quite recently, data is the new oil, right? And then you had like your more sort of, your more socialist and, and left-wing kind of commentators would say, yes, we should be paid for our data. You know, like it's our data that's being put into these machines. Data is oil, but it's our oil. We should be paid for it. Stop colonizing my data, pay me for it. And then we actually look at the price we of- We want data. our data. 
yeah, yeah, it's my data. Pay me for my data. What was happening before is that we were giving the data for free and in exchange we were getting free services. So it was like a barter exchange on like the Web 2 platforms we had. But we're like, no, no, we're Web 3 now. We're thinking like we can monetize everything. I want to monetize my data. But they actually put a price on that data and it's like laughably small. I mean, you had like you had like actual economists and politicians that were saying, no, we should get charged. We should charge companies for our data and use that to fund a universal basic income. I mean, the amount of money you get from it is like pretty much enough to have like a, a pizza and like a couple of glasses of Coke for like a family a year. That's 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 basically the actual value of your data because it only is valuable because of the economies of scale. Right. So when we start to put a price on these things, when we say putting a price on our data, you're actually trying to put a price on the value of human attention and time, which is something that I question whether we should be pricing it. Right. Because now we price it and we see how valueless we are. Does that make us more or less valuable to ourselves and to each other? And I see these conversations happening all the time. So we want to put a price on sex. So we, we all sign up for OnlyFans. Right. And some of us become buyers and some of us become sellers. And quite a lot of that is splits across gender lines. And some like we start to see what the actual price of our sex really is. Again, it's not particularly high. You can go look up for yourself what the average OnlyFans creator makes in a, in a month. It's way below minimum wage. It's not exactly empowering for women to know what their actual price value is. So there's sort of things, some things that should be priced and there's some things that should be unpriced. And like those are still sort of very low end of the wedge examples, but it gets more serious when you get into sort of trying to value and price the value of care work, which is something I've spoken out about quite a lot. It's a big push in economics and politics at the moment to include care work. That's the work of looking after your own children, your own elderly, your own spouse as part of the GDP. But now we're trying to price that again. What's gonna happen is we're gonna see how low that price really is. And already we can kind of start to see that because we can kind of look at examples as to how working women can trade their time for care work time with care workers, with like nursery school teachers and like caregivers of small children. And again, those numbers are not flattering to human beings, what we actually value, what we don't. We started having these conversations during COVID and we saw essential workers earn less than inessential workers. Because when you start to price people and price things like care and time and attention and sex and love, all of which we're not developing markets for, we actually devalue a lot of the human experience. And this thinking leads us down very dark roads in terms of utilitarian logic and eugenics. When we start to layer these conversations over the more serious pricing of the ROI of human lives that take place already with governments and economists at the moment, particularly around national health insurance schemes, where there is an ROI on the price of a life. If you are 70 years old or older in the UK and you get cancer, you're gonna wait longer or perhaps never get treatment because the government's never gonna recoup the cost in your treatment, are they? You're not gonna work back that money. Whereas if you are like a young kid, if you're 21 years old, you've been diagnosed with a dread disease, they've have prepared to invest more money instead of fixing you up because you can be a useful human resource. There will be a return on that medical investment. And that's a horrible way to put things, but these conversations are being had because governments have limited they don't have limited money because money is made up. They can just, as the modern monetary theorists say, just change the numbers on the screen. But they have limited real resources. No matter how much imaginary money you throw at it, there's only so many doctors, there's only so many hospital beds, there's only so many bandages, you know, that you can distribute. 
And when you have to make those those questions around real scarcity, simple money is not going to solve that. People are already pricing lives and we're pricing lives wholesale. So I just do question like what we pricing, what we have markets on and the whole question of the sort of ROI of your time and of your life is something that is perhaps best left to the sort of the job market, you know, and when we're actually choosing to sell our time for our own rate. And uh, yeah, so it's just very interesting to me to see the things that the things that should be priced that are useful to price in order to distribute things more fairly and more efficiently. And the things that when we price them actually become less efficiently and less fairly distributed, which is really interesting. Again, the dating and mating markets is the perfect example there. We've quantified that on Tinder, right? We know the, we know the price of, a, of every inch of your height, what, your, what that does to your literal market value. We know, we know the price men will pay to get their legs broken and extended, right? Because that translates into value that can be traded on the dating markets and the work markets. Anyway, very interesting question. We've probably taken capitalism a bit too far when we're pricing things that border into the, the heresy and the, the sort of the gray areas of the human experience. But that's, that's just me. I do like to annoy people with those conversations. <laughs> that doesn't fit, in, fit neatly into any political economic worldview, does it? Is that a left-wing or right-wing conversation? I don't even know. Like, <laughs> I think it just annoys everyone. That's true. But, but it, it looks into, well, not me, but it looks into <laughs> the details of, that's actually good. Does it, does what's it? Priced, what's priceless? This is the question. Should this be priced? Should there be a market for this or should this just be <laughs> shared? Yeah. We're coming back to the beginning of our conversation. And it's amazing that everything you're saying and talking about, like these are the little realities that are going on and everyone in one way or another is like thinking about it or being affected by it. But it's like something that you're even talking about, whereas like I'm sitting here thinking like, wow, like all these things are such a reality. But yeah, how often do I really think through all these details, but they're going on regardless. And so I think it's great to pay attention to these things or there should be more conversation about it. And and just like going back to we're here to in ways like our human like our experience and that should be something so valuable and like and something that shouldn't really yeah be diminished by certain price tags and things. And so it's how could we move forward in the sense of okay, what what can be what can be monetized and what things should we really just leave alone so we don't devalue our own selves? Yeah. If I just made me think if I randomly had a price tag on me and I woke up in the morning like, oh that this is terrible. Just messed yeah, up my day. Meaning, no, like, only that. <laughs> that is, and most mm -hmm. of these conversations, if you actually look at it through the eyes of an economist, most of those things that we consider to be priceless and valuable, our virginity, our data, our time, our care work, don't actually have a huge monetary value. And it cheapens it, you know, like these markets for priceless things. But anyway, that's that's a perspective. People people don't like that perspective at all for, for various different reasons. <laughs> but um I think it's worth thinking about if we're challenging mm -hmm. ideas of capitalism, democracy, society at the moment, let's challenge mm -hmm. the idea of, of pricing too. Mm -hmm. Do you think that people shy away from this topic because they feel it's out of their control? 
Partly, and also because it's a very uncomfortable topic, because if we don't talk about it, if we talk around it, if we act as buyers and sellers but without actually explicitly saying we buyers and sellers, we can kind of convince ourselves that we're not, right? But when we actually right. we're putting a price mm-hmm. on your body, on, on like, you know, <laughs> which is what it really is, it's your body and your soul is being priced as opposed to sort of like your mind, which we kind of used to selling in the, in the marketplace, in the workplace, which we've kind mm-hmm. of reconciled to ourselves as society, which is still unfair. The way we price these things at different tiers but at least there's sort of like a productivity question that goes with it. But a lot of the things that I've I've sort of articulated there are things that don't have a productivity element to it. They're they're sort of a dead end good. It's not a good that can be traded again. Like the 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 work that I do with my mind can become a book. It can become a computer program. It becomes something that can be unsold, right? Whereas a lot of these sort of care work priceless things, kind of, it's a it it can't be untraded. Mm-hmm. I think that one. One perspective I'm just going to bring in because I think of people who believe like in spirituality and, and God and or different forms of that. I feel like sometimes maybe they, their perspective is, OK, I'm going to go out in the workforce and all these realities exist. And but I'm going to be working for for the glory of God. Like I'm going to I'm just going to that's going to be my focus. But at the same time, it's like they live in this world and these concepts are monetizing, right? Your soul, your your mind, your time, all these things. And and I feel like it's something where if people are a Christian, they don't need to turn a blind eye necessarily to these concepts. Like these are affecting our, in a way, it's like these are in connection to our identity. We're identif- they're saying, okay, this is your value and whatnot. So it's a matter of, I guess what I'm trying to say is I think not to be, I think someone can be a Christian and believe in God and believe in spirituality, but at the same time take and put attention into the details of what is going on in, in the world of how, what we're doing for transactions and how these things are affecting us, if not consciously, like subconsciously. And I think it's, I think it's a great topic. It's, it's, it's such a reality and it's how our world's running is based off of like economy, like our economics play such a role into every day. So there should be attention. And I think these hard conversations can somehow be brought up a little bit more and maybe with a little bit of fluff around it. So it's not so (laughs) harsh and not so like cut straight to the heart, but some way to ease into it. So I'm I'm glad that you're bringing it up. So, well, it's yeah. like the whole in the world, not of the world thing. Like, I think that's the sort of the Christian perspective and it's perspective of a lot of other religions too, right? So you sort of take what you what you need from the world, but without sort of becoming entirely assimilated to it. I think it's another way we can look at the same thing about what's priced and what what's actually priceless. And that's just settling for ourselves what is a means and what is the end that we're actually working towards, right? So I think that where it becomes uncomfortable is when we is when we start to try and price the ends that we used to that used to be the reason why we worked, why we made money was so we could look after our families. And now we sort of saying that looking after our families is, is part of the work. So then we just get ourselves into an entire cycle that you can never get out of, right? So whereas a lot of those things, the care, the connection, romance, sex, marriage, those things were kind of the, the fruits of your labor. They're not like now we're trying to count them as also being labor. So then what's the point of working at all, right? You know, like what what what's actually the end? I think that's a way we could start to settle these things. Of course, there'll be debates then according to what is means and what is ends for different people. But I think that's, that's sort of, for me, an interesting way to look at 
where it gets uncomfortable for me, where it starts to feel heretical when we start pricing certain things. Mm -hmm. Nice thoughts on both ends. Rebecca, Bronwyn, I would like to thank both of you for having joined on this one, bringing various perspectives along with my, we'll call it creative one, and combining them on these various topics. Glad to have had you both on. Thank you. Yeah, and thank you, Bronwyn. Loved hearing your perspectives. And we are out.